You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is uh, Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And your co-host, Ryan O. And uh, as we have started doing, we have an interview that we get to uh, that we get to share with everybody. And if you may have noticed that we've been putting these out about once a month at the end of the month. And so I am very happy to welcome our special guest today, Dr. Megan Miller. Hi, guys. <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And so uh, Megan, is uh, she's worked in autism, and I'll let you tell a little bit about some of the work that you've done. Um, but our, our main topic today is going to be talking about a little more generally a topic about when you are working kind of with anybody in an instructional setting. Is, is that fair to say? Yep. All right, perfect. Yeah, well, so it could be, be teaching, could be at school, right? It could be in a university. It could be <laughs> teaching or at school. Sorry. <laughs> Mutually exclusive things. <laughs> Thank you, Abraham. It's morning time and we're still waking up here. Can we give some quick examples? I mean, I think uh, you might be able to give some, but I would say something like training um, even on the job uh, could be one. Um, yep. Maybe even like training athletes or something. Like that. But do you have any other suggestions, Megan? Parenting for sure. Awesome. Okay, cool. So if you're interested in those sort of things, like keep listening. All right, great. So let's just actually start by, we'll have you tell a little bit about sort of how you came into this, this field of work, um, sort of where you went to school. And what I'd really like to hear is you just tell our audience and, and us, uh, what, what drew you to this? Why do you um, enjoy doing it? And then also, what are some things that make it difficult to do uh, your job? Okay, thanks. So I've been working with children with autism for about 14 years. And I initially got into the field because I was an undergrad at John Carroll. It's a really small private school in Ohio. And there was an internship that we had to do. And I picked the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. And it was really amazing to see the work that they were doing with the kids there. Over the years, basically my entire focus throughout my career has been I like what we're doing and how much progress we're making and how much we're helping these families, but how can we do it better? So that's kind of where I'm always looking at things and learning as much as I can about how to improve the work I do with the families that I work with and now the people that I train. So it's been, I mean, I'm not going to give you the whole uh, (laughs) 14-year background on all of that, but that's been like my focus. So that's kind of how I got into the instructional control piece of things because I was doing what I had been trained to do um, as a behavior analyst and it wasn't quite working with the children that I was working with. I wasn't seeing them improve and they're responding. They weren't choosing to learn and I was like, how can I do this better? And that's when I started seeking out more information about instructional control and really focusing on that. So let's talk about then you, you said that you really enjoy doing the work and seeing the progress. Is there anything else about sort of what you do that um, is just sort of your passion? When I have worked in one-on-one settings, a thing that I've experienced is there's a little bit of sort of burnout. Um, it's just constantly sort of having to be on the whole time. And another one is when you f- are faced with enough problem behavior and and things that can that are really difficult that other people struggle with that also kind of just it's, it feels like are we really making progress and making significant change? So that's some of the things that I've experienced. Have you had a similar um, experience with that? I definitely experienced that when I was first in the field and before I really started looking at instructional control and how to improve that. And I I actually kind of, I see people comment on that just in general about their jobs, but specifically to the work we do in one-on-one settings. 
And I can't really relate to it anymore, partially because I don't do as much one-on-one work now. But even before I transitioned into more of training role, like the last, you know, couple of years where I was doing one-on-one, I maybe experienced a tantrum in session like once a month with like 15 different kids that I was working with because our focus was always on having fun, developing instructional control, meeting the child where they were, pushing them just enough, but not, not so much that they're having like problem behavior. So when people say that they're burnt out based on that kind of stuff, I just can't really, I could relate like 10 years ago, me, (laughs) (laughs) but five years ago, me. And now like, I, I just, it's like, why is that happening? You're not receiving the proper training. You're not working with the child the way that you should be if they're having constant tantrums and problem behavior. So you kind of found an inoculation against burnout. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) When you get to play all day. I mean, that's basically what like my job turned into is just how can I have as much fun as possible and help this child learn at the same time. That's awesome. Well, then let's go ahead and let's dive into talking about instructional control. And let's just start by saying, like, what is it? What What is this thing that we're calling instructional control? Uh, what does that mean? And especially, why would anyone care? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So we've mentioned already, I work with children with autism. We've talked a little bit about the one-on-one setting, but really instructional control just refers to a positive working relationship. So whether you're a teacher, a parent, a supervisor, an athlete or coach, um, it could really apply anywhere where you have to have that working relationship with someone, instructional control applies to that. Um, so that's like the short you know, description of it. The initial focus would be whatever working relationship you're having that you're focusing on you know, treating and teaching the person that when you give them something to do, it's in their best interest to choose to do that because good things will happen. So yeah, typically I think it's perceived as like a one way street, right? Like you're going to follow these instructions. Mm-hmm. But it's not that. Correct. Right? right. It's a little different. Well, and I also was here one of the things that it occurred to me as you're talking about this was that the word control in this makes it sound almost like you're you're figuring out a way to almost manipulate people mm-hmm. or you're you know, you're having a way that you have all the power and authority, but the I really like the way that you describe this and sort of having it be more of a relationship and it just means that the you're likely to get cooperation if you have this sort of positive environment does that sound about right? yes yep and it's not about um compelling someone or forcing someone to listen to you it's actually the opposite of that it's setting up a positive environment so that people are motivated and choosing to do the things that need to be done so again if you're in a classroom teaching and you're trying to get your students to learn or if you're a supervisor who has staff that need to produce certain outcomes for their work um, for some people just going into any setting that in and of itself is motivating enough and they just come in and they do it it doesn't matter who what the leader or teacher whoever is doing in the environment but for a lot of people that's not the case and there they needs to be set up in the environment so that choosing to follow those demands or produce those outcomes when they look at that oh i could choose to do that and then all of these wonderful things will happen in the environment maybe i'll get a raise maybe i'll get to play on an ipad maybe i'll get to go outside for more recess whatever happens or i could choose not to do those things and nothing exciting happens for me and the world kind of sucks so the idea here is like an initial layout of expectations is really crucial to helping create the proper motivation right in the first place to be doing these things um, but it sounds like there's this continual improvement process that's embedded there, right? Yeah, and I, I want to get into sort of the the details about how you develop this positive relationship. And I just wanted to comment again on sort of uh, how 
I guess, unique the sounds to how a lot of people sort of experience their day to day. And, you know, I think I've heard people describe it as we live in uh, a kind of aversive world that we sort of learn to navigate, avoiding that aversive stuff that's out there that sucks and we hate. And I was imagining the way you're describing this, the difference between someone who doesn't hate their boss and doesn't hate their job and, uh, and instead likes going to work and likes the people that they work with that you might still refer to this as instructional control when then their employer says, Hey, can you do this? And they're, and you know, can you please do this? And, and people are more likely to, as you said, choose to show up on time and put in their best effort and that sort of thing. And that, that can, that, so that applies not only to that one-on-one instructional control, but also to, as you mentioned, supervising people and uh, managing people and these organizational settings and probably even other things, as we had mentioned in our interview with Dr. Joe Dagan, the leadership uh, type stuff that you're going to do. And so I think we've kind of hit on already then why this is important. Let's just do a little bit more on though, specifically why this is important. Um, I think for kind of anybody, why would anybody just walking on the street or driving in their car or on the subway? I don't know whoever you're listening to this from, um, with your headphones in, why would you care about this particular topic? Sure. So it's, really the most important aspect of a learning or training relationship. If you're not focusing on how you can set up the environment to show um, that it's in everyone's best interest to, you know, reach the goals and do the things that they need to do, then you're likely not going to um, have a very productive environment. So people tend to perform better when they choose to do something as opposed to being forced into it. Um, And this is demonstrated with humans and animals. So one of the examples I always give when I'm talking about instructional control is country music. I really don't like country music like at all. I I don't care for it. (laughs) I won't choose to listen to it on my own at home or anything like that. However, one of my best friends in college absolutely loved country music and she was someone I really enjoyed hanging out with. So when we would go out places and country music would come on, I would dance with her. And then it started to be like, there's a few songs now from country music that I actually do like, and I will choose to put on the radio or on my you know, cell phone and I'll jam out to those now. But if I had never had that positive experience with her previously, I never would choose. And if she had just been like, a negative person that I didn't really care too much about. And she tried to force me to listen to country music, which did happen in the past. I had friends of my brothers who would play it in their car and they would try to force me to listen to it. And that might be why I don't like it so much, you know, so that before I had kind of this transformation of function for me when she had, I had a different experience with her and now there are some country music songs I like. And I know that that's completely different than a supervisor um, teacher relationship, but it just kind of goes to show how, how the environment can set up your your choices, basically. Well, I think you can see the parallel there just in talking about uh, the, the experience that one has coming into something and whether or not that's a positive or a negative experience and then therefore how they... As you, as you said, you know, choose to actually per- be a part of that situation or just avoid it altogether. And it seems to me that there are these situations where you kind of have a mixed bag that sometimes things are like you're in situations that sometimes they have that positive and sometimes they have that, that negative and you can't really tell um, what it's going to be. And so it's like, you know, what, what would you expect in a situation where that, that relationship is compromised by the occasional or maybe um, sporadic variation and whether or not that's a positive or negative experience. Yeah, so that's a little bit of a trickier question. It, for the work that I do, it's really easy because we're in a one-on-one setting. If the 
if there's a demand being presented that the child isn't really that into and it's kind of aversive for them, we just, we call it, we shut down the environment. So if they choose not to respond, we don't engage with them until they choose to come back to us and we can kind of work through it that way. And eventually just from that process alone, they, the frequency of them choosing to respond just continues to increase because they experience, oh, <laughs> even if I don't really like something, if I choose not to do it, nothing beneficial happens for me. But if I choose to go ahead and push through it and do it anyway, good things happen. But in more complex settings where you're looking at, you know, organizations or maybe professors at universities or teachers in classrooms, there's a lot more variables happening. So you may have to have some other things in place where you talk about those negative things and how to work through those and don't pretend like they just don't exist. I have a couple of, of thoughts around some of that. And one of them is, it seems like to me, would you, have you seen the a correlation in the fact that like there might be a quicker, that what I'm trying to say is like more efficient learning and uh, more efficiently moving through uh, whatever it is you're trying to teach um, and uh, in even more efficient work. Would, would that be something you'd expect from this? Or is it just sort of like, that just makes it more positive, but there's not necessarily an increase in productivity? We see an increase in productivity for sure. I have a few examples that I was going to talk about for, you know, my experience with this. And that's one of the examples. We had a learner who I was, it was a unique situation because they weren't my client. So I came into the setting and he was working on the same skills for an entire year without ever doing them, learning them, mastering them. And he was in a setting where it was a forced environment. He was forced to sit in a chair that was pushed up against the corner. If he didn't respond, they would just physically prompt him. And there was no choice, no active involvement for him. And I trained them on how to develop instructional control by presenting very easy demands, having lots of fun, showing him that when they, he listens, they get he gets good things. And within a few sessions, he had mastered skills that he had been working on it for a year. Wow. So just that change, you know, in the environment. And a lot of the time when we see classrooms where students aren't performing well, you know, we can make those little tweaks and they go from, you know, failing students to straight A students. And it was just because the environment wasn't set up in a way where they were choosing to, to learn and to want to be there. Now, another thing, I don't know if you've run into this before, but I've heard people sort of argue and say that this, you know, you you don't have, you don't interact with them until they come to you, that that in and of itself is in a way coercive and that that sort of forced environment where it's sort of like, well, you don't get anything unless you, unless you come do what I want you to do sort of thing. Have you run into that? And if so, how do you respond to that? That's actually the first time I've heard it presented that way. I guess if you're picturing it, you may picture something. Something like that. That's not been my experience. So typically I'm interacting. I'm following the child for this, for the work I do. I'm following the child's lead and joining them. And then if they try to engage in problem behavior or they try to leave me to go do something else, anything that's fun, I'll just shut that down. And then when they choose to come back to me or if they stop engaging in the problem behavior, then I just you know, get fun again. So it's basically like an on and off switch where if if things are, you know, moving in the direction that's beneficial and in, in creating independence and functional skills, then we're having fun and, and there's all sorts of great things happening in the environment. And as soon as a decision's made by the person I'm working with to not 
move towards that goal, then I just shut that down. Um, whereas the alternative to that that I've seen would be we try to pull the kid back in. Oh, you don't want to learn right now? Too bad. You're going to do it. Yeah. And we just try to like throw things at them and like force them into it and like keep asking them questions and keep pushing them through. And then the person just keeps shutting down and doesn't learn anything. I was, I was taught that method as part of my training. Now, it's not that I use it all the time. They're just um, persistent, like, yeah, keep pushing them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and I think it's it's actually still taught to a very it large yes. degree <laughs> all over the place. And I suppose that it might be for some people that, 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 like, that they need that. I, mean, I was, I, I was going to get there, yeah. Like, yeah, okay. Like, is there times in which it might be considered okay? Um, I get that. It sounds like we were saying just like majority of the time we should probably be doing this instead. Right. Right. You know, yeah, um, yeah, and this is by no way is like a prescriptive, like you, you do it under these circumstances, but like, you know. Right. Yeah. So there is, um, we have about, I don't know, I would say like 90% of the time you can do this and focus on the instructional control aspect, but every once in a while you'll encounter a situation where, you know, that's not working because it's hard to control kind of the reinforcement. It really only works well if you can shut down the environment and the person experiences for them like this is not a good situation for me right now. I'd rather be learning and having fun with the person that I'm working with than sit here because there are some people I've had a few clients where they would they were perfectly content just laying on the floor for three hours sure you know <laughs> yeah. they would rather do that than than touch their nose yeah. and have all sorts of fun for three hours so if you have a situation like that typically what I try to do is figure out I might not even in that point be trying to have a working relationship. I might be trying to figure out how to just have a relationship with the child and you increase their reinforcement and all of that kind of stuff. Or there may be other skill deficits relating to their behavior that I need to work on. But if all of those things are taken care of, then it may be a situation where we do have to do a little bit of it's in your best interest to respond and follow through in a more forceful way. But I, quite honestly, for me personally, at least in the last five years, have not forced a child through something. But I, we have had a few clients at the company in Virginia that I work with where, you know, there was one child that was acting out at school and he kept dropping out of his desk and like running all around the classroom. And if they had tried to wait him out, which is what we call it, if they had tried to just shut down the environment, he never would have gotten to the point of sitting at his desk and doing what he needed to do. And he was, he had the skill set to yeah. do that. But every time he got to access like dropping out or running away, that reinforced the whole entire situation. So they spent just one day holding him with permission from the parents and the even the child, just holding him there, not in a restraint type way, but just you can't leave this setting. And it just took that one day and then he was fine. Like he sat in his desk the rest of the school year. So there are situations like that that might arise where there has to be that one experience of this is how it's going to be. But I try to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah, yeah sure. it's a last, last, last resort. Yeah. And then like a lot of approval and oversight and such. Mm -hmm. Well, and something else that occurred to me as you were talking about this is it, it, with the respect to the idea that you should just, um, no matter, it seems that like you're sort of a catch-22, no matter what you do, it could be considered coercive, right? Um, is that thinking about the fact of, let's say that the people who are saying, well, you shouldn't just shut down the environment, like they should still be able to access whatever they want to, whether or not they choose to work. In that particular instance, I think that 
I would be concerned that what that child is learning in that situation is like, all I need to do is throw a tantrum and, or like break something or do something inappropriate. And then I get my way. Right. And like, that's not in the service of, of, I think in their future and their best interest. Um, and so that, that was just something that occurred to me in, in some of that. But one of the things I wanted to mention is you've been describing this sort of situation and what it looks like, right. When you have this instructional control. And so just what, what is it? How would you know if you walked into a place where people were maybe working either any of these things we talked about supervision or training or or the one on one instruction or or the the autism services thing if you were to walk in that how would you what would you look for that was like this looks like great instructional control and what would be a warning sign of like what we need to intervene right here right so some of the signs that I look for for good instructional control is are the people actively engaged. And this, again, could be in any setting, a classroom, a one-on-one setting, a work environment. Are people actively engaged in what they're doing? Do they have positive affect? Are they smiling? Do they have like a high energy? If somebody asks them a question or places, you know, an instruction on them, do they quickly respond? Um, is their responding correct? Is it a high quality response, especially at a job? If somebody's, you know, writing reports and whatnot, if the reports aren't of high quality, then that would show poor instructional control. Choosing to learn. So are, are they making that active choice? Like this is something that they want to do. Um, and are they seeking out their supervisors, their teachers, the people that they're supposed to be having that working relationship with? And of course, so signs of non-existent would basically be the opposite of all of those things. So they're slower to respond. Um, they're not actively working and they may be even trying to get away from you or avoid you. Protesting, tantruming, if you're looking at hopefully... You may see that, I guess, with adults, but generally speaking, that would be more with children. Um, Other challenging behavior, so, you know, like running away, dropping to the ground, screaming, crying, ripping stuff up. Um, One thing that a lot of people miss out on on our field is just responding incorrectly. So I have, I've overseen a few cases where I have to come in and say, you know, that they'll have clients who are performing and one day their um, response is at, you know, 100%. And then the next day it's at like 50 and then the next day it's at 75 and then the next day it's at 30 and the people that are teaching the child are like oh he's just not learning the skill and it's like but well why would he be able to do it correctly 100 percent of the time one day and then the next day it's 30 percent um so that shutting down will happen where the person just doesn't respond correctly because there's poor instructional control um or you could have that low quality responding where they're just you know giving the weakest amount of response that they possibly can and what you mentioned adults a little bit, what would it look like if you were trying to look at like a supervision situation and you see some of that, that poor instructional control um, that you might expect from, you know, I, I guess a teenager or an adult or someone who's in this training situation as the trainee? So what would you see the trainee doing or if you are the trainee? Uh, what would you see the trainee doing? Okay. So... I mean, all those similar like broad things that I mentioned, but in in actual examples, if you have a trainee who you have good instructional control with, if they have a question about something, you would expect that they would come to you and ask you that question. If you give them an assignment, you would expect that they would get it done by the time it's due and it would be done well without you needing to, you know, kind of give a lot of oversight and micromanaging of things. Um, you would expect that when when you have an interaction with them that they have 
a positive look on their face and, and they're energetic and excited to talk to you. And of course, the opposites of all of that. So if if they're like, you know, you're supposed to have a supervision session and they're sick or they have a headache or they come in and their interactions with you are really dry and flat and they're, they don't have any questions or not prepared. All right. So we've hit on uh, what it kind of looks like, what it looks like in the trainee's perspective. How do you actually go about getting this sort of stuff? Is there a list of steps? Yeah. Do you have like tips for people out there that you're willing to give away of like this is no this is how you no you have to figure it out on your own yeah <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully you'll put it in the show notes but there is so one of the things that when I was first you know creating this for myself I had posted about it on a listserv and uh, Robert Schramm who's another behavior analyst like me he commented back and said, you know, I've put together this nice list and, and we cre- ended up creating a book and a training packet relating to it. But uh, there is, it's called the seven steps of earning instructional control. And I have a link to a PDF file that explains all of it. And it's all Robert. He does a great job of explaining things and giving really good examples, but it's all based on literature relating to, to learning. So the seven steps are, he, he details them out, but it's basically to be fun, to say what you mean, to be consistent, to show that when when the person listens to you, it's in their best interest, to make sure that you're not reinforcing challenging behavior, that's the seventh one, and to, uh, to, ha- to know your priorities and set up the environment so you have control to accessing the reinforcement. So those are the seven steps, like kind of quick. I could do a whole like show with you guys just on that. That's why I went through them so quickly, but the document's really good. It explains it all in a lot of detail. And there's two YouTube links. There's links to him talking about it and like videos of him demonstrating it. And then there's links to uh, my, some videos I've made demonstrating it as well. I like that it's called earning instructional control. I yeah. think that's kind of yes. really cool. It shows that you have to be a part of this process to be able to get the outcomes that everyone's really there for in the first place, yeah. right? Yep. Whether it's a business or a teaching situation, it is not just a one-way street. And right? I think it does help also um, address that element of the title, con- the word control in the title, instructional control, that makes it sound like that coercive process um, by suggesting that it's something that you earn as sort of building that positive relationship. And um, I mean, I suppose you could rebrand it as like earning a positive relationship. Yep. That, probably, <laughs> that probably would sound too fluffy to right. get to the audience you're trying to reach for the most part. So, All right. So I'm really intrigued by uh, stories uh, myself right now. Is there anything you got that is that our listeners could kind of see as like an example of someone that maybe wasn't approaching it in the way that we've been describing largely here? Maybe it was through the other ways of trying to really – um, more or less forced the situation to happen. Um, but then they kind of learned how they didn't work and they yeah. approached it a different way. Yeah. So I, I gave the one example already of the child that I worked with that was being forced to sit at the table and learn. I have one that's not, it, they never fixed it. So I don't know if you want me to tell, tell that one or not, but just to kind of see how it could really go wrong if you're trying to be too coercive. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Okay. So that was when I very, and I think that was for me, one of the biggest motivations for figuring out how to do this better because I had a client who she was only two 
And uh, she was very, very capable and was learning a lot of skills very quickly. But it was a very coercive environment where we were, when she chose that she didn't want to learn, we were doing that forcing her back in, you know, sitting on the ground, making her like match cards. And we had a lot of control over the environment, which is what you keep talking about, Scott, with it sounding, you know, the development of instructional control sounds bad, but when you're not focusing on it, it's actually the opposite. That's when the coercive controlling stuff kind of comes in. Yeah. And just to to paint a picture real quick, that's often things that are uh, like a lot of redirecting with like your open hands and where to walk for people, right? Yeah. Where to sit. There's a lot of blocking of responses. Um, So like, yeah, physically having your body in the way of their movement. Right. Exactly. And so a restrictive, it's this instructional control issue. Um, and then there's also a pretty hefty practice. It varies literally down to like the classroom, like in the educational setting of the degree to which like hand over hand actually right. fully assisting also happens. Just yep. kind of like paint a picture of what this. Yeah. This so that, and that's what we like. were doing and, it, and it, you know, prompting's fine. Physically helping someone learn how to do something is great. Yes. But this was, this was a situation where, you know, learners are actively resisting by crying and tantruming and trying to get away from you. But because you're bigger than them, you just take over and you physically make them do things. So for this particular child, that went from her engaging in these tantrums occasionally to just, it just kept ramping up to where almost the the whole entire two hours, and this is where that burnout thing comes in, almost a whole entire two hours that we were there, she was just tantruming. As soon as she saw us come in, she would tantrum. And the, the intensity of the tantrums increased as well. It went from just tantrums to biting, to stripping, to peeing. Like it just totally escalated. So for some people, they don't experience that. And so then they say, well, what's the big deal? I'm able to check off all these boxes that we got through all of these learning trials today. Even if the person was not with me and actively learning the whole time, at least I can say I got through 100 trials today. But when you look at the impacts it could have down the road or what it could potentially shape or what what it could bring up for that learner in terms of actively learning how to engage with their environment, does it? I'd rather get through one trial of someone who chose to learn with me and be there with me and actively respond than get through a hundred of someone just sitting there and going through the motions. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on a previous episode where when you're looking at like how to set up a system to make sure that uh, teaching is a occurring and learning is occurring at the end of the day it's really hard to figure out where to put the proper like checks and balances in on that system um and so oftentimes you kind of have these expectations of you need to get through x amount of material as the instructor and at the end of the day that's uh when you hold people accountable for that these sort of things become a byproduct right uh, that's actually exactly the point that i was thinking of making um was that understanding that also having the relationship with that, the person who's in the chair, who's doing the work. Uh, not to say that you weren't saying that, but to that for them, their incentive is, or their like priorities are get through as much as possible rather than like have a really great session. So it's sort of like if you were to try and incentivize, and I don't know how you'd measure this in any objective way, but incentivize <laughs> great quality of like a session or a lesson, like how would you, I don't the know only, how you do that, but I do that. Do the you? Only, mm-hmm. Then perfect. Then, then I would, I would imagine, and you can speak to this, that you would see that, that shift toward like the person actively pursuing a more positive work relationship with that person they're working with, yeah. as opposed to just like uh, get through as, as much as I can. The right. One, the one model I've seen in like teach um, is 
essentially you're looking at the quality of instruction from a few different angles. Like are things being presented at the right time? Are things being followed correctly when it comes to like the steps of instructional control or whatever? Um, and you're focusing on the quality, not necessarily the quantity there. Like quantity is secondary and you're like interested in like where is that going over time? But you're interested in the quality. Um, does that make sense? Yep. Exactly. Okay. When I've mm, trained or measured it, I look at, I've had a few, it just depends on where the deficits are for the, the person working with the child. So I'll look at things, you know, how, and it is a quantity piece, but I'll, I'll, you know, take data on how often did they engage that child in a positive interaction that's not demand related. And, you know, did they bring in fun things that the learner is motivated by? Does, we call it STEAM. Does the learner that they're working with have high STEAM, that active engagement? And like, how often is that happening when the STEAM decreases? Do they shift to something else and build that STEAM back up? Or do they keep pushing through? So we have a lot of ways that we give feedback and train on it. And really with anybody I work with at this point, that's what we're focused on. I don't ever care how much work you get through. Now, if you're at that positive relationship part and there's not a lot of instruction happening, obviously I'll start giving feedback on that. The hard part is though, in a lot of places, we don't have that flexibility in businesses or schools right. where mm-hmm. it, there, there is still such a focus on how much did you get through, yeah. not that positive relationship. So that's getting that shift to happen would be great. <laughs> well, especially but, because I think as you pointed out, you, you tend to get one with the other. Right. So like if if you focus on that relationship, you will also get the work that you're hoping for. Exactly. And it'll be good quality work that they'll like, that's the other thing. Even if you force a child to respond or force someone to do something, they may do it in that moment, but have they really learned that skill and will they demonstrate it again some point in the future? Some of this seems to echo and resonate a little bit with that leadership one that we did as well, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was noticing that. I was going to say, just real quick, I'll link uh, designing teaching strategies. I'll link a book that if anyone's interested in diving in, as to like answering those sort of questions, how to set those things up, at least a starting place. Cool. And then we have the links that you provided. Thank you very much for those. And I was hoping, um, do you have any awesome success stories that you could specifically speak to of like when in, especially like it was just a disaster and you're able to turn around and like get someone who, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, like the kid who hadn't picked up any skills in like a year. Right. Um, And anything else like that, where you could sort of walk through the the steps that you took and and how you were able to to turn that situation around? Pretty much like when I first started in Virginia in 2000, 10 working as an in-home provider, pretty much every case I started with there was a success story because they had previous people working with them and it was a disaster. (laughs) And then I would come in and they would do well. After that, like I said, we lay the groundwork from the beginning. So the, the person is already experiencing that development of instructional control. So I'll give an example from one of the cases that I had where I came in, it was about a four-year-old boy. I observed the session with the current provider and the kid was basically just running around the house the whole time. Um, and this was one of those situations where they it wasn't even a let's just force them through it and like get a bunch done. There was very little happening because the instructional control was so weak. Um, and the skills that were being targeted weren't even appropriate. They were things that I was pretty sure he could already do. So I took over and built the very first thing, the first couple of weeks was just we worked on building that relationship. So it was me following his lead, doing a lot of whatever he wanted to do. And then I would slip in a question, something very easy that I had from his mastered list of skills that we knew he could do. And if he answered me right away, you know, 
amazing, fun stuff happen. I might be really silly with him. I might give him um, a cool toy to play with, you know, things like that. And then I slowly built up the demands of harder demands. And we call that demand fading. So I, you know, I do a schedule where it's like once every 15 minutes, I'll present something a little bit harder. And then I work that up just to make sure I don't you know, once for some people, it's really tempting. Once you've got that positive relationship, it's like, good, I'm good. I'm good to go. Here's 20 million things I want you to do. And that can just totally kill the relationship you just built. So slowly building up those demands. Uh, he went from having what we would say very little like one word responses, sometimes not responding at all, oftentimes tantruming to he doesn't even receive services anymore because he's acquired so many skills that he's, you know, doesn't even need to receive intervention. Now, of course, that was over the course of about five years, but had his services continued in the way they'd been, where it was just someone, you know, without any instructional control trying to get him to learn things, who knows? You, you know, where where he would be, where his skill set would be. So that's, for me, those are always those really fun success stories where you can say, I took a kid who wasn't hardly learning anything at all. Not only did they start learning a lot more with me, but now they don't even need me anymore. And do you also use a lot of these sort of strategies that uh, of building that instructional control in the people that you manage and supervise as well? Not as much as I should be. <laughs> So I recently shifted my role at the company I work with in Virginia. I'll be doing our outreach and development. So I'll be doing a lot more on this type of stuff and training. So it's definitely in that's like something I'm working on right now. And we do we we would have you oh we should go and do a fun activity with our employees so that we can have fun and we should make sure we you know try to focus on having you know reinforcers that we provide for when big tasks happen and things like that but we've never had the time to really sit down and have a plan you know as, as purposeful as I am with the clients I work with and the detail I put into that putting that into the individuals that I that I work with as their supervisor I have not been able to do but that's that's hopefully happening this year, finally. That's something I was talking to Megan about last night of personally struggling with, like, I need to fix some of my own systems. I know how to do it in certain areas yes. of my life, but I need to bring it into other, yep. other areas. And the frustrating thing is knowing how to do it, but just not having the time to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> That's an issue as well. So. Yeah, I think it, it is kind of funny that we know that we we have levels of expertise and things, and sometimes that doesn't carry over into all aspects of our life. Yes. Um, one thing I was thinking about, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, switching gears back to something you had said earlier, but you were talking about how that one learner uh, you had been working with had tasks that were pretty easy um, and stuff. And I was wondering, is there an element of this that's just modifying their curriculum in such a way that it's not as difficult? Um, or would 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 you even make the case that that would replace some of the things that you've done? Or how, just could you speak to that relationship? One, I was going to say, like, you're trying to make it better match their skill sets, maybe? Okay, yeah. 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 So that and that's one of the steps with the seven steps that we were talking about earlier oh, okay. is making sure. Well, it's actually two. know your priorities and that you start out reinforcing things that are easy. So looking at uh, things that are we definitely know the person can do it and just we call it catch them being good. Just really because that gives that opportunity to contact this really positive, fun environment. If we try to focus on, oh, the positive, fun environment only happens when you do these hard things, then they may never experience that and how would they choose to be there if that's not happening so that's a piece of it from just a overall 
aspect of working with individuals, it, if you are trying to develop instructional control and the skills that you're trying to teach the person are above where they should be, that's those are not going to align well with one another. So definitely looking at where their skill sets are and what their deficits are and making sure you're working at the level that they need to be. Sometimes that in and of itself could fix it. You know, if you come in and see that they're trying to, to teach a kid algebra who hasn't even learned basic math skills, <laughs> that and you just say, well, let's work on those basic math skills first. You may not even have to look at any of the other seven or six steps. You know, it might just be that. So there are, and that's the case, uh, that's the book that Robert and I wrote has a checklist in it where you could go into an environment, look for all of those types of things. And for some, you go in and like none of those things are happening. So you have to do training on all of it. Some you go in and it's just, oh, the tasks are too hard. Let's fix that, tweak it, and then you're good to go. So it helps kind of do that diagnostic. What's actually going on here? What can we do to change this instructional control? That's awesome. Is that book available now for people if they wanted to get yes, it? Yes, it's in the links that I sent you. It's just oh, called The Seven Steps of Earning Instructional Control. Awesome. Boom. Um, one of the question I had before we start to wrap this up is, I've, I've certainly worked um, with families where they had very specific opinions about how they liked to sort of, I don't want to use the word discipline, but how they liked for their child sort of environment to be structured. And um, some of those were related to cultural values um, in certain ways. And some of sometimes it was just kind of how that, those people preferred things be done. But I was wondering if you had run into any of these cultural barriers or any of these situations where there was a clash in, in values with respect to the strategy that you've taken and what what that culture might do instead and if so how you sort of dealt with that of course <laughs> there's all i mean there's always going to be those not so much necessarily cultural it's not that i've encountered a specific culture that has more difficulty with this than others it's more of the values each family has their different things that they value in the way that they see how you know they want their interactions to go with their children so when that happens, we just have to spend a lot of time focusing first on just helping them understand the process. And we may, I may even start off with where, where they value things and say, okay, you know, we'll try that first and we'll see what happens. And then I'll explain to them why that's not, why I think that's not working. And I usually use what we call shaping where we make little changes first, just to right. say, okay, I know you really would like to see it done this way, but could we try it and just take a little shift away from where they're typically wanting things? So if they, you know, typically would want a kid to do the dishes, on their own without ever being told it's just that's the routine right after dinner I do the dishes and they don't get any sort of fun thing for doing that that's just the expectation sure. then I might say what if we uh, tied in you know some sort of verbal response you know could you please do the dishes you know so like something really easy like that but ultimately what we really try to do is help uh, give examples to them in their own lives of how instructional control is working for them and help them see, you know, well, would you go to work if, <laughs> and some of them, unfortunately, you'll run into this, well, I hate my job, you know, and they're right. actually going through that same issue. And it's like, but would you like your job more if, you know, right. and like have those conversations. So it is, I mean, it's a process. We, again, same concept. I'm not going to go in there and try to force them into accepting it because I'd run into the same issue I do with my learners. They'd probably push it away even harder. So sure. it's, that you know working with them where they are all right so i actually have one last question so we've talked a lot about applications in uh the world of humans right 
Are there other solutions as well? Maybe animal training and folks like that? Sure. So just as a disclaimer, animals are not my area of expertise, but (laughs) because of my fascination with this topic, when I see people presenting on things that seem similar, I'll go and like watch those presentations. Cool. So Jesus Rosales Ruiz did a presentation at one of our conferences several years ago on what's called the poisoned cue. And if you, if you YouTube this, there's tons of really cool videos on it, but it's basically the idea that when you're doing animal training, if you use aversives, then that aversive thing becomes a poison cue and the responses that you get once that skill is trained are not as good. So what he and others have done is they've shown where if you train an animal and one of the things that could be considered a poison cue in animal training is prompting. So they call it a leash pop if you're doing it with a dog. So you do the leash pop to get them to sit or do whatever it is that you want them to do. And they learn the skill. Uh-huh. But when you watch the videos of it, when that demand is presented, once the leash is faded, the dog has a very different demeanor yeah. than if they're taught the skill without that poison cue, without that leash pop. So they had videos where they showed a dog that was taught a skill with the poison cue, that forced compliance situation, that aversive, and the dog's, you know, ears were limp, its tail was down, it was its body was kind of sagging. It responded but very slowly and it had more errors in learning the skill in the first place. But it still learned the skill. And then they taught a different skill, a different command, and didn't use the leash pop. And when they presented that command, when the dog is, you know, just there with the owner under those um, environmental context its tail is wagging its head is like it's happier its tongue sticking out it responds very quickly it's very eager um so just kind of and seeing that i mean we i see it with my learners too like we were talking about earlier you see a kid who has poor instructional control they're walking in slowly they're like well i don't want to be here whereas if you have a, a good instructional control everybody's eager to be there and they're excited and they're learning much more quickly so i thought it was interesting to see the two contrasted like that for sure one thing that i thought that was really interesting about that too is even if you're used to teaching that way say with your uh your, your dog for example like that's just like kind of what the family's done to help teach the dog new um new tricks or new commands is you you can still switch over and use these new methods and they start to work immediately still like it is i've seen some videos out of that lab actually that you mentioned um of like 15 minutes that can do just wonders yep. when it's set up correctly right um so i'll definitely link to those and then the other thing i'd add there is uh we're i'm hoping organized with some folks in this similar to this world um megan's included as well uh, July 7th and 8th up in Seattle to talk about this. So some of those top people will be there. Um, so I'll link that as well here if anyone's interested. It's uh, both in person and online. So I like to always, if I can, try and talk about how these things sort of work and understand and have a conversation so that we can illuminate and describe like what is the recommendation here? Why why would we expect that this would be the thing? And why instead those people who argue, you know, fear is the only motivator, that sort of thing. And we've we've had other discussions on on this podcast, um, um, including the interview we did with Dr. Steve Hayes, where we talked about that sort of control um, that people use that that's the coercive version. But if you look back in history, like there is a huge evolutionary advantage to 
being sensitive to things that are aversive or painful, um, because if you learn to avoid those things, then you survive longer. Right. And so, yeah, it's great to like seek reproduction and food and, and water and those types of things that are, that maybe feel good. And that's also has an advantage, but because there's such an advantage to avoiding things that are, that are painful, it, there is definitely the effect that can be seen that you can learn one time very quickly right away from those really aversive situations. But that seems that to counter act sort of the recommendation that's that's being made here. And so I would just like to ask what your opinion is and and I have some ideas myself about why it would be the case that we would recommend this strategy, why it would work um, and and what would be predicted, I guess, from like sort of a conceptual standpoint. So when you were explaining that, I'm thinking, I still don't know that I'm tapping into the why, but just from that, that's the argument I get sometimes, you know, with the aversive situation. Sure, you'll get a response, but the data demonstrate that you get more high quality and better responses when those aversives aren't there. And I think when we look at the variables affecting us throughout the day and how we allocate our time to choosing, we all make choices, right? Sure. So I would say that evolutionarily or not, people in the time where they are allowed to choose their responses, they choose to do things that feel good. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't typically choose to things do things that are aversive unless they have to for some other control reason. Right. So if you the more you can set up the environment like that where that choice that choosing results in things that would feel good, then you'll see they're going to allocate more of their time and they're responding and improve what they're doing based off of that. So that would be my simplistic answer on it, but I don't I'm sure you have much better things to say than I do. Well, no, I think you sort of you implied some important things in there that I'm just going to try and speak around. You can tell me whether or not this sounds like it's in line with the point that you are making, which is that speaking of in the context that we're working supervision and instruction and our relationships in our home life in general, those are places that we're going to be. And when we're talking about those aversives and those situations that are painful and we generally learn to avoid, those are places that we're not going to be, right? And so, yeah, it does work. And there might even be situations where we want the learning here to be aversive because we want this place to be avoided at all costs, right? So it might be that um, going into a volcano, you know, if there's like an electric <laughs> fence around it, I don't know if that's a great example, but like there, there, if you can set up an aversive there, then have that place be associated with aversives. Like that might help people because it was that one quick time and we want them to stay away from it. However, in these instructional settings, in these settings of like management and supervision and, and having people where you're going to be around them a lot, creating a, a situation where it sucks and it's aversive, like those, you want them to both be there and then creating a context where they don't want to be there. And so I think that um, implied in what you're saying was the uh, the fact that like, yeah, those things do work and there might be contexts that aversives are the best way to go because we want that place to be avoided all the time or that context to be avoided all the time or yeah. that person, it's in their best interest to have that context to be avoided all the time is maybe the best way to say it. Yeah, a, um, good, a good example. Can I give one? Yeah, yeah go ahead. So for my life is uh, as I started getting more into hiking and then like mountain climbing, there's certain things where if you misstep, you're done, like you're dead. So like there's I I've, I appreciate the aversive uh, context being used when I'm teaching, being taught in that sort of situation. Yeah. Um, personally, because it's it works very very quickly and 
the outcomes are very extreme, I guess. It, probably any high risk situation where you can't make mistakes there, um, that training with an aversive might be a way to make that that cue have the like avoid this type of thing. Exactly. All the time. Yeah. And it's not like, yeah, so sorry. So you're, you're using the appropriate instructional control as much as you possibly can. Right. Um, but then there's certain circumstances where it's like, this is the way we do it. We know it's not the most um, uh, or the best way to necessarily approach the situation when it comes to like how we feel about the teaching situation in the moment. Yeah. But it leads to the outcomes that we need. And we also need it to trigger those same feelings um, in the moment. Right. right. Like you need that there to be kind of like your warning to make sure you're not misstepping or something. Right. Yeah. But then again, going back to like when you're in an instructional setting, like that's not a place where you want the people to be there, to choose to be there and to choose to interact with that situation. So all of the things that the versives, which, you know, we, we say that word a lot and I don't know if we've ever defined, but we can simply say things that suck, you know, things <laughs> yeah. that we don't like, yeah. right? That's what that we're referring to there. When that is part of that context, then that context, all the elements of that context are things that we are generally going to want to avoid, right? And But in instruction, we don't want them to avoid that context. They don't right. want them to avoid us, right. I would think. And so um, that was sort of what I was deriving from some of the things that you had said. And, and then just thinking about generally the conversation we've had about what instructional control means and that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And I think it's important to point out, though, for the instructional environment, some people are really fun, motivating people. And then when somebody chooses not to respond, they just try to force them back into it. So I'm right. sure you've all had like a manager or a leader that you really do want to impress and do a good job for and work well with. But then as soon as you maybe make a mistake, because we're all human and that happens, or you engage in some, you know, behavior that you shouldn't have, they just become the most aversive person ever. Right. And that can really undo a lot of uh, the work that was done on the front end to have that positive relationship. As Ryan mentioned, it could, you can fix it quickly, but if you continued with just being aversive every time the person made a mistake or didn't engage the way that they should have, forcing them back into the setting or whatever you're doing, then that could cause a problem too. So I think a lot of people don't think about that, at least in the work when I was first trained, when I was second trained, I guess, to do things more positively. It was like, have a lot of fun, be really motivating. But as soon as a kid doesn't listen to you, you still make them listen to you. Yeah, and yeah. it's like pulling them back in and forcing them and all those aversives, that still undoes the whole entire instructional control process. Yeah. When I'm thinking about, I, you know, I've had supervisors that I worked with where, it wasn't that they were that unpleasant all the time, but there was a few really unpleasant interactions that I had with them that had to be that if I knew they were coming, I would find another way around. Right. Like I would go another direction. And it, and it was that situation. It's like, it's not that every time I interacted them, with them, it was bad, but those couple of unpleasant times, like I learned don't be around this person. Yep. And it's, you know, even though most of the time it's fine, it's not worth the risk. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, um, you, you know, and I think that we generally have that experience with things of, um, and I think police <laughs> probably fall in this yes. category of like, it's, it's not that every interaction with a police officer you ever have is, is bad, but like the fact that they are associated with so many punishing situations, like that's what their job is, right? Yeah, is to right. be the punishers. Yeah. Um, and not from the movie, but, um, you we know, need, the, we need to do something show. on community policing and that whole thing. That oh yeah. Shift. I actually know a perfect guest for that. Cool. We need to do that. That'd be fun. If anyone has any ideas, start sending them in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll put out a blast on Facebook and yeah. you know, the things that Ryan does with the social medias but <laughs> the hey, point being that like those uh those were people where we see police we generally are like get away yeah. do whatever we can to avoid the having them around like that's always bad news sort of yeah. even even when it's good news yeah you know it can mean it at least initially seem like bad news yeah 
I see berries and cherries and my heart starts to pound immediately. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to include that. <laughs> um, and I'm like, I don't have a background in that world, you know? Yeah. I got a speeding ticket once. Yeah. And I freak out. Yeah. It I mean, took me a lot of time to figure out I what feel the it right now. Like I can was. like I'm like sitting here going through pictures in my brain like what the heck is he talking about? And then I finally saw the flashing lights. It's like <laughs> I can feel it now talking about it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And yeah. I think that and that's that I think is the association of when we talk about these aversives and these these situations. The fact that it's like that the the punishing, the aversive, like that can be so powerful that oh. that sort of permeates all of the things. Right. And again, it is associated with avoidance. Like right. You get away from it. Right. But. And well, when you're the supervisor, you're the leader. If you see that quick effect in the moment of whatever you're needing to see from the person you're trying to teach, then that reinforces your behavior. So you're more likely to then just use the punishing and aversive things. Right. Whoa. So. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things <laughs> but, to teach. But yeah. the quality of response and the overall relationship is going to go down over time. Yeah. So, you know, being aware of that. I've, I've had debates with people in our field where they've said, well, I'd rather the person just you know I don't care about being fun I'm not a fun person I just you know want to get in there get my stuff done get out and I'm like very turned off by that I'm not a fun person either but I've learned how to be because that's how I can do my job the best you know yeah, yeah. that's fair cool I think that about does it right yeah I mean I think I don't have anything else unless uh, you have any other thoughts or comments you want to wrap it up with no I mean we're going to link to everything in the show notes thanks so much for being on the show yeah thank you very much yeah. Dr. Megan Miller for being here with us yes of course thanks for having me I see you like every month in a different like area but we finally got you actually in the podcast studio so yeah <laughs> made it happen um, yeah I think that's it let us know what you guys thought down below uh, of course we've done all that with Miranda big shout out to her she was here up until yesterday we almost had her as yep. like another person to jump on as a co-host of this um, I think that's it yeah yeah all right, cool. Well, this is Abraham. And Ryan O. And Dr. Megan Miller. We're out. <laughs> You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.